Hey, welcome. I'm so sorry. I thought the camera was going to pop on, but something changed with the software. Anyway, welcome tonight. Welcome. It's Monday night. Our second, uh, our, yeah, Monday night. First Monday in July. I think, no, second Monday in July. Anyway, anyway, I'm confused. Just want to let you guys know if you hear any noises. Uh, my sick dog is in here with me. Um, my regulars will know about her. She was, uh, when we were in the other studio, she used to hide under the uh the couch we had in the other studio and you could hear her grunt and, and make noises, but she's been kind of ill with the, with a pancreas issue. And so I brought her in here because we have air conditioning in here. You know, it's been really hot, you know, 114 today, finally not 93. So it's, it's a decent temperature. So she's in here with me and she keeps staring at me. It's pretty funny, but anyway, welcome tonight. We got a great show. Again, I get to put my journalism hat on uh, to, to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart and that's animal welfare. You know, I have, anybody that knows me know, uh, knows that I have quite the menagerie here at the house. I've got four, I've got four rescue cats. Well, actually, two two rescue adult cats and two kittens that I re recently rescued, that were born to feral parents. And I've got three dogs and my bird, and you know, it's it's quite the menagerie here. But uh, I really, really care about animals. Um, I used to. I used to work with uh, Performing Animal Welfare Society out here. I used to do PR work for PR work with them back in the day when I was active, you know, an active journalist. And uh, yeah, it was something that's near and dear to my again near and dear to my heart. My name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour. Welcome everybody. And we are the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team at www.californiahaunts.org. This is our radio show, California Haunts Radio. You can see that behind me. And that's www.californiahauntsradio.com. So welcome, everybody. And I want to get going with our guest because I, he's got a lot of important stuff to say about, about animal rights. And he has done a lot in the field. And I'm really excited to have him. So let me get him up for you. Hello. Good evening to you. How are you? Very well, very well. So glad to be on California Haunts Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome. What you do, I'm just in, I'm in total awe of what you do. Thank you, thank you. It's, it's, it's so wonderful. It's a life passion for me. I, I, I didn't have anybody in my family who was really attuned to animals, but it was in me from my youngest days. I was fascinated by animals, domesticated animals, wild animals. And as I got older, that instinct to care for animals just grew stronger. And as I learned about what was happening, I decided I wouldn't be a bystander. So I've been at this for really much of my life. And, and uh, it's, it's in my DNA to care for animals. That's fabulous. That's just absolutely fabulous. Because I was going to ask you, how, how did you get started doing this? Well, so I grew up in the city. I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, and my father was a football coach. My mother was a, was a secretary for a construction company. We were a working class family. And when I was a kid, we had, you know, a set of encyclopedias and I had all of the encyclopedia entries dog eared to all of the animal entries. So we'd pick up the P encyclopedia and it would be polar bears or pronghorn antelope, or you pick up the E and it was elephants. And mm -hmm. I just was fascinated by animals. And my favorite show as a kid, I'm dating myself, uh, it was Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, I just couldn't get enough of animals. I knew they were different, uh, but they were different in fabulous ways. They had beautiful eyes, they had beautiful fur, they ran fast, they were athletic. 
The differences to me only heightened my interest in them, didn't make them less important or less significant. And when I went to college, I really began to understand what was going on with animals, that animals were killed for their fur, for, for adornment, for human adornment. They were killed in laboratories for testing purposes. Mm -hmm. They were shot for trophies by globe-trotting American uh, hunters. Uh, they were confined on factory farms where the pigs or the hens were in cages barely larger than the animals' bodies. Uh, animals were used in circuses, wild animals like elephants, to perform tricks. They were beaten in order to make them submit. You mentioned the Performing Animal Welfare Society. I used yes, to work sir. with Pat Derby, uh, the late Pat Derby, and, uh, and her husband, Ed Stewart. Mm -hmm. And they worked on circus animal issues and other captive wildlife issues. So I really began to see that we humans were engaging in a sort of tyranny against animals, that this was an attempt to, to kind of make them seem less important, that they were just things. They were units of production. They were uh, living test tubes. They were... Uh, creatures to be harvested on a sustainable basis in the hunting industry. And I thought with our language, we try to reduce the importance of animals, turn them into a thing rather than a who. And that kind of clears the pathway for us to do terrible things to animals. And I decided I didn't want to be a bystander. I wanted to do something about it. And there were other people and there were organizations that were focused on this. So I joined up and I've been running hard ever since. And I have uh, had the privilege of, of working on this in a full-time capacity for many years, leading a number of major animal welfare groups and have passed hundreds of federal laws, thousands of state laws, dozens of ballot measures, negotiated corporate agreements to get SeaWorld to stop breeding orcas or to get Giorgio Armani to stop using fur to get Walmart to embrace the five freedoms of farm animal welfare for its animal product sales. So it's been a huge passion. I'm not done yet. And uh, that's why I'm glad to talk with you, Charlotte, and your listeners on California Haunts Radio to try to get them involved. Because only when we embrace this as a personal sensibility, where we really think about how our choices affect the lives of animals and how we engage politically to drive public policies and corporate policies to affect animals, we're not going to ever solve this problem. But if we participate and do our job to be civic-minded people who are alert to the suffering of animals, we can really change their lives. And there's no issue in the world where you as an individual can reduce more suffering than to get involved in animal protection. This is one of the great moral blind spots that exists in our society today. Many of us thoughtlessly, you know, interact with animals, unwittingly exploiting them with our consumer choices. And it's important for us to think about this. It's an important moral question, as important as the other big moral questions that drive so much thought and activity today, whether it's concern for the environment or it's concern for civil rights or women's rights or uh, any of the big issues of our day, this is one of those big, important questions that any thinking person should spend time ruminating. Well, you know, you brought back memories for me when you talked about the stuff you had as a kid because I had the, I had the Time Life series on animals. I had that, that whole you know, the encyclopedias and all that on animals. I also had those cards. When they had those flip cards, I had a whole set of those. And I could go alphabetically and, you know, look up whatever animal I wanted to look up. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was just, in fact, I was going to go into forestry. In fact, originally I wanted to be a forest ranger. Me too. That was, that was, that was, you and I had the same association because in some ways we were so unfamiliar with what it means to interact with animals that forest ranger is the thing that you think of. Right. And, you know, when I was a kid, I, as I said, I grew up in the city and, and we had a police precinct, a very kind of brick and mortar, square building, no windows. And it also served as the, as the animal control um, facility. And it was literally, you could see it from my doorstep. And I heard dogs barking and I 
I look back on this and I think here I was a kid who loved animals, wanted to help them. And I never so as so much as once walked over to that animal control facility and said, you know, what can I do to help? Uh, I didn't think about promoting adoption. I didn't think about, you know, any aspect of this. I just let it be. And it was a reminder to me that, you know, these things can be right in front of our eyes and we ignore these questions. And that, again, we have a duty to really think about this and to, to act once we have information uh, on this topic. Absolutely. I was going to ask you about black, uh, about Blackfish because I saw that, you know, as, as one of the sites that, that, that you refer people to. Let's talk about that a little bit, um, you know, about the plight of the whales, especially that particular whale, because that one, you know, a lot of that, what people don't realize is that a lot of that is frustration on the part of the whales too, because you put them in that tank. Absolutely. So Blackfish was a documentary that really had an incredible uh, outsized impact. You know, there are a lot of documentaries out there, but few of them really pop in terms of their social impact or effect. This one was about SeaWorld, and it was about a whale named Tilikum who had um, injured and killed um, trainers at SeaWorld. So this was an occupational safety issue for these SeaWorld workers that they were interacting very directly with these orcas or killer whales. And in the wild, orcas never bother people. I mean, there are basically no attacks on people by wild orcas, even though they're probably the most powerful predator in the world. You know, they can be 20 or 25 feet long, you know, maybe 15 tons or whatever the number is. And, you would, you know, they could gobble us up in a minute, but they don't. But in captivity, where we put them in swimming pools that, you know, are basically the equivalent of our living in a tight closet, right. um, they get terribly frustrated. And there have been a number of incidents involving uh, these orcas and trainers. And this one became a headline grabbing uh, whale because of the incidents. And a, a brilliant uh, director uh, did this film, Blackfish, that really documented what was going on, documented how the orcas were captured from their families, these pods, um, off of uh, Puget Sound in Washington State. And uh, they were kind of captured in a very um, inhumane chase circumstance, and the mother separated from the babies. And it really caused people to think about their visitation and uh, to and patronage of SeaWorld, mm -hmm. which has an iconic sort of name. And a lot of people go there because they love the animals. They want to see the animals, but they don't know the backstory. They right. don't know the backstory of what happens to those orcas, how they got there, uh, what their emotional and psychological condition is based on this really deficient environment. This is something I wrote about in one of my books called The Humane Economy, where I essentially argued that businesses that cause harm and exploit animals are really going to... Um, put themselves at risk. Uh, thank you for putting up the cover of the book. That's great sure. of you. Um, they are going to put themselves at risk because they are going to be increasingly misaligned with the values of their customers. And if you're someone who goes to a, a, uh, uh, a SeaWorld type facility or to a zoo, you go there because you love animals. Mm -hmm. Yet if you really understand what's going on, you'd be repelled by some of the behaviors that go on at some of these facilities. And that is really what Blackfish did. And it changed the stock price of SeaWorld, it changed practices. So I began to negotiate with, with uh, SeaWorld. Uh, I met the chief executive and he knew they needed to make a change. Mm -hmm. And he and I, after weeks and weeks of very difficult negotiations, announced an agreement to really change the whole orientation of SeaWorld. He's no longer there, but many of those policies endure. And this is an example of how public pressure, human creativity in the form of this artistic expression of a documentary, um, activism, um, conscious consumerism has really changed the way animals are treated for the better. The problem with animal issues is there are so many of these problems. Animals are used in almost every sector of the economy. 
They're used in food and agriculture. They're used in science and testing. They're used in wildlife management. They're affected by mining and forestry and uh, oil drilling and other resource extraction industries. Mm -hmm. They're used in the textile industry, their skins or their fur. So it's something that is just embedded in every aspect of our lives. Many people totally unalert to the moral consequences of their choices. But I think, you know, in my lifetime and in yours, Charlotte, right. we've seen an incredible awakening and people are much more attuned to animals, whether the dogs and cats in their communities or to farm animals or to the plight of whales and dolphins and elephants. It's a new day. And, and uh, it's important for all of us to remember, though, that this is an ongoing struggle. These animals depend on conscious action from people. Because in the relationship that we have with animals, we have all the power. There's a tremendous asymmetry that we hold all the cards. We can be the lords of the animals, meeting out death and destruction and even extinction, or we can be benevolent and we can be kind and merciful and protective. You know, it's like a relationship between an adult and a child. I mean, one can, one can do terrible things or one can be nurturing and, and caring. And, you know, I don't say that humans and non-human animals are the same. As I said, to start the show, they're different. You know, they have, they look different from us. They, they behave differently from us, but they are equal to us in one way. And that is the capacity to suffer. They have the same sorts of nerve endings that we have. They have a heartbeat that we have. They take breath from, from the atmosphere like we do. These are similarities. And the fact that we may be more intelligent as we measure intelligence mm -hmm. is an irrelevant uh, you know, characteristic from a moral perspective. I mean, it's relevant if you're taking an IQ test, but it's not relevant if you as an individual are taking a moral test. And maybe those animals who are capable of suffering just as much as we do, but don't have an ability to defend themselves are even more deserving of our mercy and goodness and appreciation. I think we're going to look back on this era, especially the 20, 20th century emergence of factory farming and animal testing and globetrotting trophy hunting and think, my God, how could we how could we have exhibited this collective unconsciousness about animals? And, you know, uh, you know, I know that on your show, you talk about UFOs and, and, uh, and paranormal issues. And so many people have been in denial. Now, finally, the government admits, right, that, that there, there are UFOs and unexplained uh, aircraft phenomenon that move faster than we could ever imagine. And people deny it and deny it and say, oh, this is impossible. Well, a lot of people deny that animals feel and think. They deny that we're doing these things to them on factory farms. And I think that, you know, there's going to be a big awakening. It's starting to happen. But uh, it needs to be a much more bright and uh, open-eyed awakening than we've exhibited so far. Oh, Absolutely. And I was just thinking while you were talking, you mentioned um, when I saw you, when I heard you on the other show also, people, you know, when they think of animal, you know, cruelty in, in this, they do think about the chickens, you know, and, and they think about what's going on, on on those farms. But like you say, there's other stuff going on around the world that we don't realize. I mean, you got the, can like you spoke about the kangaroos, right? And what was going on with them? Well, you know, this is incredible. I mean, the kangaroos are kind of the animal symbol of Australia. You know, one of the continents of the world, one of the biggest countries in the world about the size of the United States. And these are marsupials. These animals, you know, jump, uh, you know, as a way to, to move forward. They're remarkable. You know, they're just, they're fascinating creatures. I mean, Australia is filled with incredibly different and exotic native wildlife. And what people don't know is that they are the victims of the largest slaughter of native wildlife in the world. Two million kangaroos are killed every year in their native habitats by commercial shooters. Australians who go out in the middle of the night and they shoot them from the side of the road uh, and then they, they skin them and they take their, their skins to sell to Nike and Adidas and New Balance and Puma 
and the other major athletic shoe companies to make soccer cleats. Now, these are companies that have great innovation in their shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, like just about everyone, have purchased Nike shoes and Adidas shoes and other shoes for, for much of my life. Right. But I didn't really stop to think about what they were made from until, you know, some years ago. And then began to understand that kangaroos are used for 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 shoes. But these companies through the years have innovated. The shoes are now lighter and more durable. And most of them are now vegan. They're not made from animal products at all. So they have shown through their innovation and by selling shoes to hundreds of millions of people throughout the world that they don't need to rely on animal skins, certainly not kangaroo skins. Mm-hmm. And one of the aspects of this slaughter of kangaroos is that, you know, when these guys are shooting the kangaroos at night in the middle of the night, um, you know, they're shooting them from a hundred yards, sometimes 200 yards away. They can't tell um, who's pregnant. They can't tell uh, which um, uh, kangaroos have joeys with them. The joeys are the juveniles and the joeys are in the pouch. So, Many of these kangaroos are carrying dependent young when they're shot. And they're shot from, again, you know, a very long distance where there's no possible way to discern whether it's a, a sole adult or a, or a parent. And uh, of the 2 million kangaroos killed a year, 400,000 of them are joeys who are basically killed because their mother has been killed. And the Australian... Uh, parameters for how you handle the situation is you bash the skull in of the joey. So the shooter comes across the slain mother and then sees the joey in the pouch or at the foot of the dead mother. And, and they're supposed to, you know, slam their head against their truck or against the rock. And this passes for civil behavior in the 21st century. When we humans have this great creative mind, we can figure out a way to make shoes without making them from kangaroos. This is reminiscent of what we did to the bison or the buffalo right. in 19th century um, North America when the, the mid-continent was teeming with bison or American buffalo. And after we developed the repeating firearm and especially the transcontinental railroad where we can then carry a product from the midsection of the country to the coast to get to the big commercial markets and the newly growing cities and even export markets, we slaughtered these bison by the tens of millions. I mean, there was estimated there were 40 to 60 million bison in the, on the great plains of North America. And in three decades, we reduced them from tens of millions to 500 animals. I mean, it's the, you know, just a great colossal slaughter rivaled perhaps only by what we did to the passenger pigeon, There were billions of passenger pigeons in the span of just a couple more decades. um, We completely eliminated them. The last one died in captivity in the early part of the 20th century. This was at a time when we had less in the way of technology. Um, We had more rudimentary firearms. Uh, We had less developed transportation systems. We had less in the way of human population by many factors. And even at that time, we took the most abundant mammalian and avian species in the world and we just about liquidated them that was then so think about now with our new technology with these incredibly huge markets with seven plus billion of us Mm -hmm. i mean if if there's a demand more of a demand for kangaroo based uh nike uh soccer cleats i mean all the kangaroos could be wiped out if they simply respond to that demand and this is really the the dilemma that we operate with when we work on animal welfare. It's not just a matter of our own personal proper treatment of our pets in our homes and in our communities. There is systemic abuse of animals in all these big sectors of the economy. Again, textiles and clothing, science, wildlife management, food and agriculture. The numbers are staggering just staggering and there's no um, no, i I can see from like that distance they can't tell whether it's a male or female either but there's no controls on them like with crab fishing where you know where that they're only allowed to take males 
Well, no, they can't distinguish between the males and the females at that distance. I mean, it's it's nighttime, so it's dark, and they you know they could use a spotlight, right. but it's it's very difficult. You can't you can't you know sex them from that distance, right? I mean, they're the males are typically a little bit bigger, but you know you can have smaller males or you can have juvenile males. Right. So it's 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 quite difficult to distinguish, and they would have done it had they been able to do it because mm -hmm. it's a terrible PR vulnerability for them. Right. And the fact that 400,000 Joey's are killed a year means that, you know, they're, they're killing 400,000 mothers with dependent young. Wow. So that, that's a, that's a, it's a huge deal. And they do have limits, but they, they don't have good population estimations. Um, the estimates are very crudely developed. Um, a lot of the Australian scientists who don't work for government and who right. don't work for the kangaroo killing industry think that kangaroos are badly depleted in many portions of Australia. Uh, the government trots out this propaganda, oh, the kangaroos are everywhere when mm -hmm. the science just doesn't support it. So their quotas don't mean that much when they're set so high um, that they, they, you know, they could really damage the population substantially in addition to causing all the cruelty. You know, our argument is not just an argument about species scarcity. It's about cruelty. They shouldn't treat animals this way, even if they're abundant. Right. I mean, we have a lot of people in society. You could say, oh, we could lop off a billion of them. Well, we don't do that because we respect individuals. We have human rights. We respect the autonomy of the individual. We expect we we respect the bodily integrity of the individual. Mm -hmm. This is why we have anti-cruelty laws in our nation. These date back, you know, the earliest ones to the 1830s to forbid malicious um, harm and exploitation of animals, causing them undue suffering and pain. Really what my group, Animal Wellness Action, and then our sister organization, the Center for a Humane Economy, do and people can go to animalwellnessaction.org sure. or centerforahumaneeconomy.org. You can go to those sites and see what we do. But really what we do through and through is we attempt to logically apply anti-cruelty principles in a world where animals are widely used by institutions. And animal cruelty doesn't just mean random acts, like doing something terrible, like you know setting an animal on fire or clubbing an animal with, with, a, with an implement. It really means looking at factory farming and it means looking at, at trophy hunting and the fur trade and all of these different expressions of animal use, many of which have endured for, for centuries, but some are, are innovations of our technology. I mean, I think of factory farming as, uh, as, as a, as a terrible innovation. I mean, factory farming treats animals like they're just things that, you know, these laying hens are jammed six or eight birds in a cage about the size of a big microwave. And they're in that cage for 12 to 18 months while they're alive. They never get out. They're shoulder to shoulder. They can barely, wow. they can barely move. It's, it's like you and me and six other people, Charlotte being jammed in a small elevator for a year or 18 months. I mean, we'd start to go crazy after 30 minutes. We'd go wild after an hour. Right. Uh, think about a week or a month or a year in that elevator with no relief. I mean, yes, they may scrape out the, the feces and the urine every once in a while. They might put some food in front of you, give you a little water, but is that a life? And, yeah. you know, factory farming was was not the way things were done in American agriculture. I mean, you drive around America still, you can see cows in a field. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you may even, you know, catch glimpses of some other animals in a field. So that still exists, but that was the norm. But, you know, 60 years ago, we moved animals into these big warehouses. And then in some of them, we put cages side by side by side, and then we stacked them and we put the animals in there. That was very successful from an animal production perspective. You could grow a lot of animals with their incredible will to survive. They can endure miserable living conditions mm -hmm. and survive and even grow. And then you can slaughter them. 
but it was an example of human innovation detached from conscience. What we really need is human innovation attached to conscience. We need to harness our human creativity to figure out ways for us to lead good, healthy, enjoyable lives while not leaving a trail of animal victims in our wake. I'm confident we are smart enough as a species to figure that out, that we can have our good lives and you know, reduce poverty and uh, enjoy the arts or go to a national park and spend time with family, play baseball and other sports and listen to music. These are all great things that are expressions of, of human enjoyment and recreation. We can have all that, but not make life a living hell for animals. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we don't need to adorn ourselves in fur coats. We don't need to put animals on factory farms. We don't need to torture animals in labs. We don't need to recreate by staging dogfights, cockfights, or trophy right. hunts. These are, these are things we've been doing, and people justify them and rationalize them, but they don't meet the test. If you really think about what animals' lives are to them, they're important to them. And as we understand science, that they do suffer and that we also have the ability to figure out a way around it, I mean, why, why shouldn't we do that? I mean, don't they have tests that they can do now where they don't have to use animals, like, say, for lipstick or anything like that? Yes, for cosmetics and household products, there are widely uh, recognized alternative methods to do safety testing on these products or toxicity testing or eye irritancy testing. And many hundreds of companies market their products safely without relying on animal tests. And you can see this little insignia of no animal testing on many of the, of the uh, packages, the bottles and, and other packaging that exists. There are other categories of animal use. I mean, we use animals to test pesticides, um, chemicals, new drugs. Wow. Um, there are an incredible number of animals used for new drug development. I'm working on a bill in Congress called the FDA Modernization Act to eliminate a requirement in the 1938 Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that requires animal testing for every new drug developed. So whether it's an Alzheimer's drug, or an arthritis drug or a cancer drug. I mean, some of these things are, you know, more human-oriented afflictions. The animals don't really get them, certainly not in the way that we get them. And the animals are not particularly predictive with the human response to a drug. Yet, it's a 1938 statute, you know, 82 years ago. That's the way we did things. We poisoned animals in order to see what it might do to us. Uh But we have all these new innovations in science that obviate the need for tormenting animals And this bill simply says, you know, we should be allowed to use the best method, whether it's a non-animal method or an animal method. A small step forward doesn't even eliminate animal testing. It just says use the best method. But that is is something that is built into the law, this animal exploitation. It's what, you know, what we need to change. Can't they use, I mean, can't they take blood samples of, of, I, I don't, you know, you don't want to directly use the animal. But can't they take blood samples of or you know platelets and all that of the animal and then do the testing without having well, to physically use the animal? Yeah, I mean there there are cell uh, testing strategies. Um, I think you know part of the issue is that folks in the in the testing and research community say, well, you need to operate on a, a whole organism. And now we've developed in laboratories these cell tests that that basically mimic the functioning of a lung. It's called lung on a chip or there is kidney on a chip. So if you are looking for kind of the effect on an organ, you can replicate that with these very sophisticated uh, new testing uh, methods. And there, there are just hundreds of these new testing methods. And it's very exciting for those of us who've been involved in making kind of the moral argument Mm -hmm. on this, but now we have a, a science argument. I mean, the whole thing with drug testing, too, it's a, it is so, the, the evidence is so compelling that the current paradigm doesn't work, that basically what we're doing is we're requiring a set of rodent tests and then other tests like dogs and primates for new drugs. And many tests, you know, substantial number over a period of time. And 
they're designed for two things. It's safety testing and what's called efficacy testing. So mm -hmm. safety is that if we take a drug, we don't want it to kill us or right. you know cause some other terrible adverse reaction to compromise our health. Because the fourth leading cause of of death in the in in the United States is adverse reactions to drugs. Fourth leading cause. So that's not at some level you can see that's not working. But the so the animals are tested. They're subjected to these testing methods. And that's supposed to give us an indication of how it reacts in us, the drug. So we move to human clinical trials where, you know, people raise their hand and say, yes, I'll participate in this. So in 95% of cases mm -hmm. where the, the drug was deemed to be safe and effective in animals, so it passed the animal test. It was a, a positive check mark. It goes to human clinical trials and fails in 95% of cases. So what kind of system is used when it, it gives you the wrong result in 19 out of 20 tries? I mean, if you were a baseball player and you struck out 19 out of 20 times, you would never get into the batter's box. They would never allow you to play. You'd be hitting, you know, 50 when the standard in baseball is not 1,000. You're, 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 if you hit 300 then that's you're, you're considered an all-star. This is a an outrageous failure rate, but you have a whole kind of academic and regulatory scheme that these folks have just been steeped in this and they justify it and they rationalize it. And that's what they were trained to do. So they continue to persist with this paradigm of animal testing when a much more diverse set of testing strategies should be embraced in order to more effectively do safety testing. You know, I, I watch these, these uh, uh, drug commercials on television, and I'm sure you've seen them. They, they have people like, you know, running on this grass and beautiful families and it's all, and then they say, you know, it's an arthritis drug or it's a, it's a, a, you know, whatever kind of drug it is, a heart medicine or, or, you know, cancer or whatever. And then they start to list the side effects. Well, side effects include swallowing your tongue or, you know, depression and killing yourself. I mean, I mean, have you, have you seen these ads where they yeah, talk so, yeah, about, those, yeah, those side effects are scary. What's the it's whole, really it's, it's 80% of the commercial. Who, it's the a, hell wants, who the hell wants to take something where there's a chance of all that? Right. So that's what the animal tests you know, they do those animal tests, yet they still are uncertain how it's going to affect people. And they still put it out there anyway. So right. this, this, this is a, a, a circumstance where we can do better as a society. Absolutely. I, I agree hundred percent. Just like, I, I know we're all getting, we're all running around getting, getting this vaccine. I'm all for it. You know, if it, if, if it keeps us from getting sick, but it was fast tracked. And I can agree with some of the people that, are leery about taking it because it was fast tracked and, and who knows how they got to this point. Did they use animals? What, you know, what did they do to get us to this point? Yeah. Well, it was fast tracked and, and that was an example though of an urgent circumstance in our society where millions of people were getting sick. So they brought urgency to, to try to get something done. And the, the general pattern is that it takes from concept to to delivery of a new drug to patient groups who need it it takes 10 to 15 years it's so slow and it's so expensive and a pharmaceutical company needs to invest one to six billion dollars uh, that's this that's the range for a new drug so generally charlotte it takes way too long so these patients who are who are suffering from a disease are getting no relief because the process is so drawn out. It's so bureaucratized and the animal tests lengthen it so much that the vaccine development for COVID was actually incredibly rapid, which again, you noted that people have said, well, maybe it was too quick. We don't know the side effects. And, and uh, I just saw a story on the news tonight about the effects. You know, we just don't know the effects of COVID on, on, on our neurological function that, right. that 
that again, this was a little different than the vaccine's effect. It was more COVID that it has this side effect. You get foggy brain and this and that. So we don't know so much of this yet. We're using these unreliable animal tests and then somehow thinking we're safer when we're not. It yeah. just is not a good screen. It's proved to be not a very good screen. I, I agree with you 100%. And I, and I realize the chimpanzee, you know, the cro- you know the, the chromosomes and all that with the chimpanzee are, are probably the closest to us of, of any animal. But, I mean, like you say, if you look into the chimpanzee face, I mean, how could you possibly do that? How could you torture one like that, even in the name of science? Well, I, 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 I entirely agree with you. And that's why a number of years ago I worked on a campaign to end the use of chimpanzees and invasive experiments. It's recounted in my book, one of the books you showed on your screen, The Humane mm-hmm. Economy, that I worked with Dr. Francis Collins and Dr. Jane Goodall, and the National Institutes of Health basically stopped the use of chimpanzees in invasive experiments. And that era has now ended in the United States. And that is a good thing, and yes, if you subscribe to the idea of evolution, uh, these chimpanzees are the closest to us in terms of matching our genetic code. So if there's any animal who's going to be a good indicator of the human response, it might be a chimpanzee. But we've said, no, they're so close to us that there are moral questions that arise and that we're going to recognize the morality of, of the equation and we're going to restrain ourselves and not exploit these chimpanzees. And, you know, one of my favorite movies when I was a kid was Planet of the Apes, uh, where, you know, the apes were talking, they had civil, they had societies, and they put human beings, you know, in a subservient sort of position. It changed the, the natural hierarchy. So you start to think, well, what if there was a species that was more powerful than us? Mm-hmm. What if... Uh, there was some extraterrestrial or some other species on earth that could do anything to us. Would we want them to put us on factory farms? Would we want them to, to dab chemicals in our eyes? Would we want them to force feed us them? Maybe they'd let us go in a fenced area and they could hunt us and shoot us for, for our head. Might does not make right. The fact that we happen to be the most powerful species on the planet does not mean that that is the way the moral order should work, that somehow we get to do whatever we want because we're the most powerful. We don't give more rights to the biggest, strongest kid on the playground to pick on everybody else. Right. We don't say that you know, the nation with the strongest army can do whatever it wants to other nations in the world. Uh, and I think for us, these, these other animals, whether they are or little mice or their big elephants, they all have lives that matter to them. And we should be much, much more conscious of how we treat these other creatures. Absolutely. So my question is this, um, you know, it's the old adage of, okay, we we get these laws passed in the United States to not do this, but how, how do we govern other countries? I mean, you know, like look, look, look at the crab thing that's go that goes on you know we we have these these counts these guys have to get certain quotas on crab they can't go above it but then you got the russians that are going in there and take whatever they want yeah well i just heard this uh on a, a story today that in this philippines reef area the chinese are bringing these factory trawlers and mm-hmm. and mining the the fish so that the filipino fishermen you know barely can 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 make a living so Yes. I mean, we live in a global community. We cannot restrict animal welfare concerns and sensibilities to the United States. That's why it's a global movement. And I've been working internationally, and we at Animal Wellness Action have an international arm. Uh, We are working on issues all over the planet. And what is good to see, and Charlotte, you were kind enough to put my book up, The Humane Economy. You also put another uh, book that I wrote, The Bond, Um, on the screen. And The Bond um, is a book I wrote about the human-animal bond. And I talk about how we humans uh, grew up in nature, that we were hunters and gatherers for 99% of our human history. We were immersed in nature. 
and that we are hardwired to be drawn to other species. We've always been hardwired to be tied to other species. And I talk about this in very specific ways that we have social bonding hormones that connect us with others. You know, a mother is drawn to a child for chemical reasons. I mean, it doesn't just happen. Uh, There's a hormone called oxytocin and it is kind of a love drug and it is a socially connecting uh, drug. It means, you know, a mother can stare at her baby for hours and hours um, of the day. And we have these social bonding hormones that connect us to one another in, you know, maybe less dramatic ways than a mother and child, but really important. That's why we're connected to others. We're a social creature. One of the worst things you can do to a prisoner is put him or her in solitary confinement. Uh, He or she goes mad in that environment because we need social interaction. Well, why are we drawn to to animals? Why do we have uh, 350 million pets in our homes? Mm -hmm. Why do we walk out in nature and love to catch a glimpse of, of an animal? Why are there tens of millions of bird watchers? You know, why do we trek to these forests and parks and, Why do we go on whale watching expeditions? Mm -hmm. Because we're drawn to animals. This is part of our human makeup. It's ages old for us. Now we have some phobias that exist. We have natural instincts to fear snakes or Mm -hmm. spiders because that's hardwired in us. But overall, we're drawn to animals. But it just is a, it's a weak sort of valence. It gets us in the right direction. Then our mind has to take over and then we have to act on that in a more full sort of way. But we humans are connected to animals. We've always been connected to animals. Animals have always been at the center of the human experience. It's really only in this industrialized age, in the last 250 years, that we have commoditized animals in this way. So when we have caused so much extinction, when we have, when we have you know, developed these factory farms and animal testing laboratories, and, and killed animals for fashion in the ways that we, that we do. That is a change in our human relationship to animals and really what we need to do and what my groups, Animal Wellness Action, the Center for Humane Economy are trying to do is get us back on track, ending the era of exploitation and, and harm and really treating our responsibility to animals and the earth in a different way, that we are custodians, we are caretakers, we are keepers, we are guardians. And that is something that we can figure out and it will be better for us. Uh, When we hurt animals, we hurt ourselves. I mean, these mink farms, I don't know, Charlotte, if you've seen any of my recent blogs on this issue, but mink farms are incubators of COVID. It turns out that mink, who are raised for their pelts to sell into the global fur trade are the most susceptible animals to COVID. And there have been mutations at these mink farms that have spawned three variants, one in Denmark, one in France, and one in the United States. This could throw us back into the pandemic if these mink farms spawn another variant. And it's wrong to to keep these wild animals in small cages and have them attack each other because they're overcrowded. These are mink are mainly solitary, semi-aquatic animals, and we bunch them in together, which leads to terrible outcomes for them. But we're doing it for a luxury product. And now it's rebounding on us, and we're seeing that our systemic mistreatment of these animals could threaten human public health, just like the live wildlife markets in China almost certainly spawned the, the COVID crisis that has, you know, cost nations of the world, trillions of dollars and millions of lives and disrupted our lives like probably nothing has since World War II or, you know, the 1918 Spanish flu. This is big stuff. And when we mistreat animals, we do, we do harm to ourselves. We do harm in terms of the deadening of our compassion and our spirit, but also in these more practical ways of zoonotic disease or violence in our communities. You know, when we are involved in stopping dog fighting and cock fighting, we're seeing people who are very commonly involved in other criminal enterprises. These are not people who are obeying other laws and they are enjoying 
bloodletting and violence, is that going to be contained to their cockfights and dogfights? No. I don't think it is. And what about, real quick, what about um, the, 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 that uh, festival they have every year? The one where they're, where they're killing the dogs to eat them. Oh, yes. You mean in Yulin, like yeah. in the, the yeah, meat yeah, market? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The meat yeah market. in Yulin, China. Right. Well, there's, there's certainly been a global, um, global effort to stop these meat markets where dogs are, are raised and bred and killed for human consumption. And many of them have been stopped. And again, you know, we're, we're seeing the, the live wildlife markets, which often involve wild animals, but could involve dogs as well. We're seeing some real change there because people have seen what the effects are. Right. And their concerns, you know, rabies is a pretty big concern in China. And they gather these dogs together. And this could be a way for rabies to spread. So there are public health authorities that are weighing in on that. But these are not animals who've ever been raised for meat. I mean, these are carnivores. I mean, yeah. dogs are descendants of wolves. Right. Cats, you know, came from smaller wild cats. Those animals historically were not consumed, right? I mean, mm -hmm. historically, we humans consume more of the herbivores, you know, the, the deer and the hooved animals. And then mm -hmm. you know, we domesticated animals and produced cattle and pigs and, and, and others. But... Eating the predators has never really been our thing as a species. Absolutely, absolutely. How can people get involved? Well, um, there are organized efforts that I encourage people to join. You know, getting becoming a member of Animal Wellness Action, getting on uh, our email list. You can get alerts to be um, given the opportunity to you know support legislation that's coming to the floor of the U.S. House or the Senate or to ask put people to write to a corporation like Nike to get it to stop using kangaroo skins. Mm -hmm. So one way to get involved is get involved through an organization like Animal Wellness Action or the Center for Human Economy. But I think as importantly, we should live our lives in a more conscious and alert way. We should be making conscious food choices eating more plant-based foods. Mm -hmm. uh, we should be not buying cosmetics that are tested on animals. We should stay away from uh, leather and fur and opt for these other products that adorn us just fine. Uh, we should, you know, be careful when we're driving. Watch out for animals crossing the road. Uh, we should not be producing and using excess plastic that gets into the oceans that sea turtles and other animals consume and then die. I mean, the way that we consume products and treating the earth like a dumping ground, which then animals are poisoned as a consequence of our behavior. So it has many manifestations, Charlotte, mm -hmm. and it's not easy, right? And I, what I say too is you don't have to be perfect. You know, you should be striving to do better, but none of us is perfect. By living, we have an impact. But that doesn't mean that, well, because we have some impact, we should just go whole hog and do whatever we want without a care in the world for our effect on other species. And this is why I think it's important for us to be uh, conscious consumers, politically engaged, organized with groups mm -hmm. that can harness the collective energy to change the way that animals are treated. You know, one person can raise his or her voice and it's powerful, but when 100,000 together raise it, that's when you pass laws or get corporations to change. But I think the most important thing that we do for animals are the food choices we make because we sit down if we're lucky enough to three meals a day mm -hmm. and we can either vote for factory farming or against it. We can vote for plant-based foods or, you know, for ranching that's, that's, occurring on our public lands that's driving off the wild horses and they're killing the predators to make, you know, these public lands more usable by livestock. I mean, these are big, important questions that are tied to our personal behaviors. So I think that's really important to think about as difficult as it may be to think about and think about changing your habits. It's very important for any moral, rational act actor to think about this and I'll tell you, you know, when you make changes in life, you feel more powerful. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you, you feel like you're doing something. Sometimes the best things that we can do as individuals are to change our habits and the ways that we've done things. You know, think about your own health. You give up something that was hurting you. That's a change for the positive. If you think about eating more consciously, that that is so empowering. I know that when I really started to change the way I I I ate because I didn't want to cause so much harm through these supply chains to animals, it really empowered me to take broader action on animal welfare. Interesting. And what do you think, you know, I know there's a lot going on, a lot of this going on, but what do you think is probably the, the biggest issue? I think the biggest issue is, I mean, they're all important, and I, I hate to have a hierarchy because I, Right. I care about all animals. I mean, it's not just a preference. I think this one's prettier than the other. It's like they're all equals when it comes to suffering. Uh, but the biggest problem, I think, is factory farming. Uh, we raise 10 billion animals a year for food in the United States alone. The average American eats about 33 land animals a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them are chickens. Um, and then you eat a portion of a pig or a portion of a cow because they're large-bodied animals. And that is a big use of animals numerically. I mean, that more animals are killed for food in the United States every year than there are people on the planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think of the logistical exercise of killing that many uh, beings. But beyond that, it's a huge source of greenhouse gas emissions, raising animals. Uh, animals, the flatulence and the other, uh, you know, the waste that they create. Uh, all of the energy inputs that go into animal production. It's just immense. It's enormous. We're also giving them antibiotics um, to prevent them from getting sick on factory farms because we overcrowd them. Antibiotics are not supposed to be a prophylactic. They're supposed to be a treatment when you're sick. So what we're doing is we are feeding these animals antibiotics and we're getting into a losing race against bacteria who develop resistance. They're called antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Once those class of antibiotics are no longer useful, we are in a heap of trouble in terms of our uh, medical health. You also think about what's, what's causing destruction of the rainforest, the lungs of the planet. We're clearing land to graze cattle or to grow soybeans, which are then fed to cattle. I mean, you look at this in every way. The reason that wolves and bears are being killed in the West and coyotes is, is to make the land safer for cattle grazing. I think it has so many consequences. That's why we have such power when we make a choice. Like, you know, a great product like Beyond Meat, um, you know, this is a a new plant-based, relatively new plant-based burger. It has so many characteristics of meat. It looks like meat. It tastes like meat. You're You're not the lesser for it, but you don't have to be perfect. I'm not saying your listeners have to go vegan or vegetarian tomorrow. Make a conscious choice. You know, reduce your consumption. You don't go all the way. Reduce. You know, you can go from 33 animals a year that you consume as an average American to 20 or Mm -hmm. to 10. You save animals just like that. And obviously, there are lots of other things to do. Spaying and neutering your animals, going for adoption rather than getting a dog from a puppy mill. Right. You know, buying a, a coat that is environmentally sensitive as compared to fur. I mean, these are these are all things we can do. Getting shoes from Nike that are not made from animals rather than made from kangaroos. Right. These are conscious choices. You have such power. Everybody has such power. Use it. Use your power. Use Absolutely. your intelligence. I've got a question in the chat room. What can be done about humane society places that after so long they um, euthanize animals if no one adopts them? Well, the, there, there are a network of animal shelters in the United States, and they really began to spring up in the 19th century. And we really called it animal care and control. And they, were, they were controlling animals. They were killing them. That was what they did. They would gather them up and they would kill animals. The, the, the stories uh, from Henry Berg, the founder of the ASPCA, I mean, he was, they would put animals in cages and put them in the river and drown them. Um, and he was aiming to stop that. So we've progressed a long way. Uh, now, you know, no euthanasia is a very common um, occurrence at, at many shelters in the United States. And that's 
pretty recent. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were killing, you know, two, three million dogs and cats in shelters every year. Now it's way down. During the COVID crisis, you know, you couldn't get uh, a, a shelter dog because there was such a run on the shelters. But it's important to continue to do that. And shelters should never be in the business of killing. Mm-hmm. It should be in the business of saving. Right. But that is a responsibility that's a shared responsibility by the shelter as well as the public. The mm-hmm. public has to make the right choices. Don't go to puppy mills. Don't go to pet stores that are selling puppy mill dogs. They say, oh, this is, comes from a licensed USDA licensed breeder. That means almost nothing. It means almost nothing. The federal USDA licensing and inspection program is a set of survival standards for dogs. They are not comprehensive animal care standards. So that is something that all of us have a responsibility. If we bring a pet, a dog or a cat into our home, which is a great and wonderful thing to do, do it in a way that is saving a life and not contributing to some commercial enterprise that hurts animals like a puppy mill. Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much, Wayne. This was a fascinating hour. It went really fast. It sure did. You're oh a great gosh. interviewer. I thank you so much. I would love to get you on again to talk more about this stuff because there's just so much going on with this, you know? I'd be delighted to join you again. That'd be great. Again, thank you so much, and uh, I hope we didn't take up all your time. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I look forward to coming back. If they'd have touchscreen computers with remote controls, wouldn't that be cool? So you wouldn't have to lean forward all the time to mess with them? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm like in your face all the time trying to move stuff because I'm blind. But anyway, I want to thank you so much for coming on. And again, I'll be be in contact with you to get you back on because I I want, you know, this is something that's, that's really close to my heart. And, 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 and there's stuff, like you said, there's, there's, there's little things we can do that, that, that'll make it a better place. I'm so glad you're alert to all this, Charlotte. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you very much. You have a good rest of the week, sir. Thank you. You too. Okay, guys, that was a great show, a really great show. And uh, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. Tomorrow, our good friend Jared Murphy is going to be back with us to talk about... Um, ancient history and technology and he had requested us to in fact he sent me an email because he's got some new research he wants to share with us so that's going to be kind of cool i apologize for turning around every so often like i said my my sick dog is in here so i'm kind of keeping an eye on her she's got pancreas issues and she'll uh you know lose her lunch quite quite a bit and so i'm trying to keep an eye on her and see how she's doing with, with some new meds so i apologize for turning around but I thank all of you for coming, and um, like I said, tomorrow night we're going to have a great an ancient history show. You know what? It's, it's like Wayne said. Get out there and help. Even every little bit helps. Just like with me, I you know I, I like to go out to, 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 to visit Paws, you know, just to go out just to donate food or donate money towards food for, for those animals that, you know, that, 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 that they've taken out of the performing environments just little things like that will make a difference if you're out walking and you see you see some kind of weird trash on the ground pick it up you know i know a lot of cases uh from from the wildlife rescue places up in placerville where some poor animal will stick its head into a jar and get stuck in the jar because it's trying to get to whatever's in the jar you know and then they have to trap the animal and they have to they have to somehow get the jar off and then, then the animal stays with them for a while it's stuff like that I mean, you're out hiking somewhere, you see a jar, pick it up, nothing to throw it away. You know, just in, in, you know, be, be more conscious about your surroundings. Anyway, I will see you guys tomorrow when we talk to Jared Murphy. And uh, you know what? Our numbers are going up. Everything's rising. And what we're doing, you know, by sharing the show, share it with five people. It's like we always say, um, if you didn't like the show, share it with five people anyway. <laughs> you know, share it with your enemies. Also, you know, we are nonprofit, so if you could donate a little bit to us uh, to help us keep this thing on the air and, and keep these really cool guests coming on, I'd appreciate it. The address to donate, because I usually don't do that, is I'll wait for it to go by. Um, donate to paypal.me at California Haunts. It's that simple. That's paypal.me at California Haunts. And, you know, $5, $10, $20, any little bit helps us. It really does, you know, to keep everything on the air because this is all out of pocket. And I do want to bring you guys some 
you know, some more really cool guests like 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 this gentleman that that was on tonight. So again, I will see you. Hang on, let me flip this up here. Let me get up here. Make sure I'm on the right page here when I go to flip around. I will see you guys tomorrow, same time, and uh, we should have a really good history discussion. Another thing on Wednesday, okay? Don't don't leave me on Wednesday because Wednesday night we've got another great guest coming on. Uh, this this guest that's coming on Wednesday has done research into Jack the Ripper, and he's kind of come to some very interesting conclusions as to who Jack the Ripper may have been. So that's another one you guys are going to want to are going to want to check in with on Wednesday. Okay. Anyway, thank you all for being here. And again, that address is paypal.me at California Haunts. And you can check out the website for the radio as well. We're doing updates on that at www.CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Okay. Well, I will see you guys. And I have some links for you. In fact, let's start with the links right now. I'm going to read them out loud. So for people that want to... Uh, you know, do a little more and get, get to know Wayne a little better. I've got some websites for you guys, and let me read those off for the people that are on the podcast. Uh, www.humanesociety.org. And the second one would be www.facebook.com forward slash W-P-P-A-C-E-L-L-E for Wayne Passell. Animalwellnessaction.org. And the other one was blackfishmovie.com. So check out those sites, and uh, that will give you a little more information on what we were talking about tonight. In the meantime, here's where you can get Wayne's books. And that's going to be at Amazon.com. You can pick up bo both of his books there. And so we'll take a look at the pictures of the books. Dun, dun, dun. And the hum uh, Humane Economy by Wayne Passell. I think I got his last name correct. And the second one is... Coming right up. I kind of gave it a little more time. The Bond, Our Kinship with Animals, Our Call to Defend Them. And that is also the other book that Wayne wrote. Anyway, I will see you guys tomorrow. And uh, hope you have a good evening. <laughs>